Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And on today's episode, we are going to explore why it is ETFs or exchange-traded funds can be so much more tax-efficient than mutual funds. Obviously, this is important because when you're investing, it's not the return that you're getting that we care most about. It's what's the after-tax return that you're getting. So that's exactly what we're going to explore on today's episode to see how you can do better with your after-tax returns. Now, this episode comes from a listener question, and this listener question is from Tim. Tim says, enjoy your show. Common issues regarding investment and retirement discussed and answered thoroughly, and the response is well thought out and actionable by listeners. Thank you for providing very useful information and advice compared to some other podcasts out there. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. Tim goes on to say, appreciate if you could answer a question about capital gains on investments. Every investing podcast and financial advisor spends a lot of time discussing tax advantages of index funds in a non-qualified account to avoid capital gain distributions, and or they advise to avoid rebalancing too frequently to avoid capital gains. I don't understand the math of that. If I sold a mutual fund or stock and made a long-term capital gain of $100, that is $85 in my pocket and $15 in Uncle Sam's. Same thing if the fund distributed capital gains to me at the end of the year. That's still a profit for me. Unless it's a short-term capital gain that is big enough to bump me up from one marginal tax bracket to the next, I don't understand why a mutual fund distributing capital gain profits to you once or twice per year is so bad. Last I checked, 15% of $0 is $0 in my pocket. Thanks for all you do, Tim. Well, thank you for your question, Tim, and thank you for listening. And if you're listening and would like to submit a question, you can also do so by going to the Ready for Retirement webpage at readyforretirement.co, and there's a tab there called Submit Your Question. But let's get back to Tim's question because this is an excellent question. When you look at this, it's you're exactly right, Tim. The tax impact of a capital gain from an ETF versus the tax impact from a capital gain from a mutual fund versus the tax impact of a capital gain on anything that I buy and sell is the exact same. It's not as if the IRS is looking at our tax return and saying, oh, Tim has capital gains or James has capital gains or so-and-so has capital gains. Let's see where they're from. And if it's from an ETF, we'll just magically forgive it. You're exactly right. That is not the case. The tax treatment of all of them is the exact same. What it comes down to, though, is the control of the timing of it all, which has to do with the way ETFs are structured versus the way mutual funds are structured. So what we're going to do today is, number one, we're going to talk about why this is the case, that ETFs are more tax efficient. Number two, we'll give some real-world examples that most people never even consider about the advantages of ETFs over mutual funds in some regards. And then number three, we'll talk about when this absolutely doesn't matter because there is a lot of hoopla of ETF over mutual fund and, and half the people promoting that. It's irrelevant when you actually look at their portfolio and the way it's structured. So let's talk about why this is the case. Let's talk about an example where this can help. And let's talk about where this really is relevant so that you can make the best decision about your investments. So let's start with this. Why are ETFs more tax efficient or at least more tax efficient than mutual funds? Well, look at this example. When you put money into a mutual fund, you don't actually directly own any individual stocks or bonds. You are just putting your money into a fund. You are literally purchasing shares of a fund. So let's say I'm a mutual fund manager for a second. 
course I'm not, but let's just make that assumption. And let's assume, Tim, that you put some money in my fund and other people put their money in my fund and people all around the world are putting money in my fund. You're not actually buying any stocks or bonds. You are buying shares of the fund that I am managing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of these collective funds, money from Tim, money from me, money from other people, and I'm going to make decisions about what stocks or bonds I then want to invest in based upon the objective of that fund. Now, the value of these stocks and bonds is going to go up or down based upon whatever the market's doing, and that's going to make the values of my shares go up or down. Now, here's the thing. So far, there's been no tax implications. But as a mutual fund manager, I'm constantly having to rebalance the fund by selling stocks and bonds to either accommodate shareholder redemptions or to reallocate assets. So Tim, let's say that you need your money back. Well, you request a redemption. I have to sell some stocks and bonds to honor your redemption, which means there's some trades that are happening to be able to free that capital up. Well, when I make that trade, let's say that it realizes a capital gain. So that capital gain, I as a mutual fund manager do not pay taxes on that. That flows through to the end investor. Okay, so Tim, you're gonna get a tax form at the end of the year that says here's exactly what you owe in terms of the, the taxable amount of the capital gains from this fund. So far, no problem, right? Well, right for Tim, but what about every other single investor inside of that fund? When I sold that investment to free up cash for Tim's distribution, it did not just create a taxable event for Tim, it created a taxable event that is spread across everyone. Based upon the proportionate share you have of my fund, that's the proportionate share of the capital gains that you're gonna have to pay taxes on. So let's look at an extreme example. Let's, let's assume, new example, let's assume I'm a mutual fund manager and I started 20 years ago and I was the best mutual fund manager and I predicted Apple was gonna do incredibly well and I own some Microsoft and some Amazon and I own Netflix as soon as it went public. And let's assume that I own the best stocks and I've never sold them. So over the last 20 years, I've been accumulating incredible companies and those companies have gone up in value a tremendous amount. Well, let's say that Tim today sees my fund and says, wow, James has been doing a great job with that fund. I want to buy into it. So Tim puts some money into my fund. Well, let's now assume that I say, you know what? I've held on to Apple and Amazon and Netflix and whatever other stock I said that I owned. I want to sell them. I'm going to sell them. And I'm going to reallocate the money inside of this fund. Well, Tim, even if he bought shares today, and even if those shares did not go up in value at all today, but I sold these funds and reallocated them, at the end of the year, Tim, you are going to be on the hook to pay capital gains from the positions that I sold. Even legacy positions from 20 years ago, you are on the hook to have to pay some of that. So you can imagine that that's probably not going to be a fun tax bill to get. You're going to be looking at that and say, what on earth is going on here? My share in this fund has not actually gone up in value at all. But my portion of taxes that I owe is enormous because there were so many unrealized gains that because I realized, though, those after Tim became an investor in my fund, Tim is responsible for paying taxes on. So the challenge here is there's these legacy gains that Tim is responsible for, even though Tim didn't actually participate in any of that growth. So before I get too much further ahead of myself in terms of the breakdown between mutual funds and ETFs, at the end of the day, when a mutual fund investor asks for his or her money back, the mutual fund must sell securities to raise that cash. And those sales and those purchases, those impact everyone in the fund, regardless of the timing of when that person entered the fund. Now, an ETF, on the other hand, so an exchange-traded fund, it's structured differently. So an ETF manager, that manager will accommodate investment inflows and outflows. So in the same way there's inflows and outflows with mutual funds, 
An ETF does it by creating or redeeming what are called creation units. Now a creation unit, this gets a little bit confusing, but it's just a basket of stocks or bonds that approximates the entirety of the ETF investment exposure. So whatever stocks and bonds the ETF is owning, there's a whole bunch of multiple creation units that are created. And when you purchase an ETF, it is technically that that you are buying and selling. So because of that, the investor is not going to be exposed to the capital gains that they would be in mutual funds on any individual security in the underlying structure because of the way it is set up. So with an ETF, if you want to sell an ETF, you simply sell it to another investor, just like you would with a stock. Whereas if you want to sell your mutual fund, you're not selling it to another investor. You are redeeming your shares of that mutual fund, meaning that mutual fund is giving you your money back as opposed to you redeeming your shares on the open market. Now, there's a lot of details that go on behind the scenes of an ETF that, as I mentioned, can get a little bit confusing. There's things called authorized participants or APs, and they're the ones making sure everything flows smoothly on the back end. So as investors are buying and selling ETFs, it's the companies like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Without you even knowing it, in the background, they are the ones trading the underlying stocks or bond in the index themselves or creating or redeeming the shares in the ETF itself to provide for the structure that allows you to own these same investments, but without the tax consequences that are involved with owning a mutual fund. So with that in mind, the basic differences between the structure of an ETF and the structure of a mutual fund, let's talk about the benefits of an ETF and how it can apply to you. The first one is other people's redemptions don't hurt you. And when I say other people's redemptions, what I should say is other people's redemptions and portfolio manager decisions don't hurt you. One of the things that you want to look for inside of a mutual fund is something called the turnover ratio. The turnover ratio simply tells you that on average, how frequently are the stocks or bonds or investments within the fund being turned over? So a turnover ratio of 100%, for example, that indicates that on average, each investment is held for 12 months. Mean that 100% of the investments turnover or are bought and then sold every single 12 month time period. Now, of course, some investments are held, but some investments are sold more frequently than once a year. But on average, a turnover ratio of 100% indicates that each investment is held for an average 12 months. A turnover ratio of 200% indicates that on average, each investment is held for six months because 200% is telling us that each investment gets turned over twice. So it's bought, sold, bought, and sold twice within 12 months. So a 200% turnover ratio seems that once every six months, investment is turned over. Now, a turnover ratio of 10% on average means that one out of 10 holdings is sold every year. Or put another way, every holding is held for an average of 10 years. So within a mutual fund, the turnover ratio matters. And this turnover ratio is caused by either portfolio management. So the objective of the fund is to buy and sell as actively as possible to generate higher returns or because of fund redemptions. If they're going through a bunch of market ups and downs and people are getting spooked and scared and selling out of their investments, well, that is causing some turnover too because the portfolio manager is having to sell funds to honor those redemptions. So one benefit of an ETF is these underlying transactions, these buys and sells, unless you're the one doing the buying and selling, it's actually not generating capital gains for you, at least to the same extent that it is in a mutual fund. There is a little bit of capital gains that can be generated in ETFs, but as a whole, it's significantly less than what it is with a mutual fund. So if you have a mutual fund with 100% turnover, what that means is that even if you're holding the mutual fund the whole time, once a year, 
the investments inside of that mutual fund are going to be completely swapped out for new investments. And that's going to happen year after year after year. And every time it does that, it is sending you capital gains on your tax form that you are responsible for paying taxes on. So with the ETF, on the other hand, you're realizing capital gains when you choose to realize capital gains. If you want to realize a capital gain this year because it's a great year from a tax standpoint to do it, great. But if you don't want to realize a capital gain this year because it's not a good year from a tax standpoint, well, then wonderful. Just keep holding the ETF. You're not forced to do so. So this becomes especially important in retirement planning because in retirement planning, we hear so much about this talk of tax loss harvesting, which is very important and saying, how can we sell funds at a loss to offset taxes? Well, there's something called tax gain harvesting that can be even more important in retirement where we intentionally want to be realizing enough capital gains that you could realize without paying any federal taxes on, depending on what your income is. So the more control you have over the timing of realizing those capital gains, the more it's going to save you in taxes and the better off you're going to be over time. And an ETF just allows for much more control with that. Number two, the second benefit is those embedded capital gains that I talked about. So there was actually an article back in 2017 by Jason Zweig, and it was called, the article was called The Rot That Lies Beneath Some Index Funds. And we think of index funds as, as being good, and index funds can be very good. But what he was highlighting was the fact that there was a fund called the PNC S&P 500 Index Fund, where you think, great, I'm going to own this fund, and it's just going to be passively managed, and there's not going to be a whole lot of capital gains from it. Well, this fund in 2017 announced a payout of $4.18 in capital gains in September of 2017. Now, that $4.18 of capital gains represented close to 22.5% of the total value of that fund, which means if you were a new investor in that fund, and let's say in August of 2017, you bought into that fund, maybe you had no gains or very, very minimal gains from August to September. Well, that mutual fund manager then decides to realize a capital gain, and that capital gain is being passed along to you. You are paying taxes on that. It's almost like phantom income you never actually experienced or phantom gains you never experienced because you weren't in the fund at that time, but you are still responsible for paying taxes on it. So these embedded capital gains, you do need to be careful when you are buying mutual funds of understanding what, if any, potential embedded gains already exist so that you don't necessarily have to pay taxes on them because you will if you buy the wrong fund at the wrong time. Now, we already talked about this. Because ETFs don't necessarily have to sell the underlying securities to finance or to honor any investment inflows and outflows, they don't necessarily have the same capital gains that they're going to be paying out that is treated like phantom growth that you have to pay taxes on. You do pay capital gains when you realize a capital gain, but not when some of the underlying buys and sells and other transactions are happening. So in doing this, ETFs are typically not exposing their shareholders to capital gains in the same way that a mutual fund is. Now, you might be asking yourself, why does this even matter? Let's assume that I don't care about realizing the capital gains. And I know I'm going to pay it at some point. So why not just pay a little bit each year as opposed to deferring it all for a much greater capital gain at some point in the future? Well, that's point number three. And this is the point that most people actually don't even think about. And it can be quite substantial when you look at the numbers, but it has to do with tax drag. Now, to illustrate what this means, let's look at an example. Assume you have an investment, and this investment grows at 10% per year for 10 years in a row. And assume that this investment is in a brokerage account. So not an IRA, not a Roth IRA, just in a regular brokerage account. So you put $100,000 into this investment. Well, at 10% growth, 
that $100,000 is going to grow to about $260,000 10 years later. Let's run it up a little bit. So 100 grand grows to 260 grand if it compounds at 10% per year. Well, there's there's no avoiding capital gains on this. So Tim, in your question, you wisely pointed out that I'm going to pay taxes at some point anyway. So what's what's the benefit of doing it all at once versus not doing it? It's a gains a gain. I'm going to pay taxes on it. Well, let's look at this. In this example, if you sell that 260,000, you're going to pay taxes. You're going to pay capital gains taxes on the growth. The growth in this example was $160,000. So the 260,000 that it grew to minus the 100,000 that you started with. $160,000 of growth, you pay taxes of 15%. So I'm looking at federal tax brackets. That's $24,000 in taxes, which means your net proceeds are $136,000 of after-tax growth. Total proceeds are $236,000, but $136,000 when you back out your initial investment. So that investment generated $136,000 after-tax growth for you, which is pretty good. But now let's compare that to another scenario. Let's assume the same exact assumptions. You have 100,000, you put it into an investment that grows at 10% per year, but this time, every single year, you realize your capital gains as you go. So you realize your capital gains each year and you pay 15% taxes. Now, technically, you have to own an investment for one year and a day to be considered long-term, but I'm ignoring that for simplicity and assuming that at one year exactly, you can sell your investment, pay capital gains, reinvest the proceeds. So now what's happening is you're really compounding at 8.5% per year because 15% of the gain was taxed. So in other words, if 10% per year growth is what you're getting, 1.5% of that growth is just going to pay capital gains taxes, 8.5% is your after-tax growth, and let's assume that you reinvest the after-tax amounts each year for 10 years. So the only difference between this and the prior scenario is in the prior scenario, you did not realize any capital gains until the very end. Whereas in this scenario, you're realizing them each year as soon as they hit long-term capital gain status. So if you do this, what you're going to do is your $100,000 is going to grow to $226,000. That's after tax because keep in mind, we've been paying capital gains as we've gone. So there's no actual capital gains taxes due at that point. That's just the after-tax amount that you have in your portfolio. So if you back out the $100,000 that you initially started with, that's $126,000 after-tax growth in this scenario compared to the $136,000 of after-tax growth in the initial scenario. And you look at this and you say, okay, James, your, your numbers have to be wrong. <laughs> They're both getting 10% growth. It's 10 years for both of these examples. You're starting with the same amount. What's the difference? Well, the difference is you're creating tax drag by paying taxes each year. So that first year of realizing gains, if you have a $10,000 profit, and then you pay $1,500 of that in taxes, Again, there's no way around paying that $1,500 in taxes, but if instead you were to allow that $1,500 to remain an unrealized gain, it remains working for you. So it's almost as if the tax liability that you have due, because it's continuing to stay invested, continues working for you and continues generating growth, part of which will just be additional taxes, but the majority of which will be more growth for you. So if the more often you're realizing these capital gains the more often you're creating tax drag, you're taking out bits of your portfolio that can then no longer compound for you. So you want to avoid tax drag. And one way in which you do that is minimize the capital gains that you're realizing each year. Now, the higher your tax bracket, the more significant this difference becomes. So if you either add an estate tax, like I'm in California and say you're in the 10% tax bracket, California doesn't have more favorable capital gains rates than does ordinary income. It's just all treated as the same. 
So instead of using 15% for the capital gains tax and the, the tax drag here, that would be 25%. Or maybe you're in the 20% federal capital gains tax bracket. Or maybe you're paying the net investment income tax, or the Obamacare surcharge. It's an additional 3.8%. So as you start tacking on or adding on additional layers of taxes or increasing the taxes, that only widens the gap and makes the deferral of capital gains even more important the wider that tax bracket is or the higher that tax bracket is. And another thing that widens it is the more years that we use in this scenario. So if we were to compound this for 15 years or 20 years or 30 years instead, it just widens that gap between paying capital gains as you go versus letting those unrealized capital gains continue compounding for you and generating more after-tax growth even after you pay your capital gains tax at the end of the day. Now, what most people end up doing is they end up paying their capital gains taxes out of pocket with cash that they have. So if you're paying with cash out of pocket, then it kind of skews this analysis a little bit because you are actually continuing to keep your money compounding for you. But to really do a clear analysis, we'd have to then look at, well, what's the opportunity of that cash that you're using to pay capital gains taxes? So if we isolate the variables here and look at it from the standpoint, the benefit of an ETF is by avoiding the realization of capital gains because we don't care what other people are redeeming their shares of the fund for. We don't care what the portfolio manager is doing in terms of turnover. We don't care about the things that are happening within the fund that don't impact us, all we care about is the timing of when we choose to realize the gain. That's going to be much more beneficial for us because that plays into our tax strategy and we can have much more control over when we're going to realize that versus defer that. So when doesn't it matter? We very clearly see that this can matter. This can add up to tens of thousands of dollars in value over time if done correctly. When this doesn't matter is let's say you're doing all of your investing in an IRA or Roth IRA or other qualified retirement account. This is totally irrelevant. Yes, you want to use the fund that's going to have better performance, lower fees, whatever you're looking at. But from a tax perspective, it means nothing. Any gains or dividends or growth or interest inside of an IRA or Roth IRA, completely tax deferred. So even if this was the most tax inefficient fund and it was realizing all kinds of gains, it does not matter to you because those gains are not taxable to you. The second time when this doesn't matter is maybe you're in a very low tax bracket and you're not paying taxes on capital gains anyways. This really doesn't matter. Now, I don't want to say it fully doesn't matter because back to my prior example, we want to be able to control the timing of when you're realizing capital gains so that we can fill up the tax bracket or fill up the tax threshold right up to the top to where we can realize the maximum amount of capital gains before paying any taxes. But if you're in a low tax bracket and you're well under those thresholds, this also doesn't really matter so much because you're not paying taxes. But for many people, when you're investing in a brokerage account, this absolutely does matter. So not only are you looking at mutual funds and ETFs from the standpoint of what's going to deliver the best returns for me and what fits most within my portfolio, my risk tolerance, and the goals I have, we also wanted to consider the tax implications for it. So I hope that was helpful. Tim, thank you for your question. If you are listening and you have a question that you want to submit, you can do so by going to the Ready for Retirement webpage, and there's a tab there called Submit Your Question. Otherwise, if you are enjoying this and you have not already done so, I'd really, really appreciate it if you were to leave a review. It just helps more people find our show. Every single week, we're getting more listeners, more downloads, and it's just really fun to see. And that's all thanks to you and the friends and family you're sharing this podcast with and the reviews you're leaving. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for continuing to spread the good word. And I'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. 
And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.